0: Welcome to the Drapplecast, episode 180. The Drapplecast is a weekly short fiction audio magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Big episode for you folks this week, with a big story and a big full cast production. But first, some big news. On Wednesday, February 21st, 2007, I started up this show with my two best friends and partners in crime, Luke and Kendall. It was a chance for us to shed light on the weird, disturbing, and or hilarious stories that we came across on the internet. It was an excuse for us to write a little more ourselves. It was something to do. We really didn't take anything too seriously back then, and it shows, in good ways that we've tried to preserve over the years, and in kind of bad, embarrassing ways, like our then-poo-poo-nasty production values. Anyways, here we are, three and a half years and 220 stories later, and we just won the Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Magazine. Luke, Kendall, and I can't help but be a little… astonished. Now, don't get me wrong, we take great pride in producing this show each week, and we give it everything we can, but we also have no idea what we're doing. At least, we didn't starting out. We once snubbed Matt Wallace by accidentally sending him a form rejection for a story that we just solicited from him. We once offered Alan Moore three-quarters of a cent per word for any stories that, quote, he might just happen to have laying around the house, even crappy ones, unquote. Not to say that you've ever written any crappy stories, Mr. Moore, we perhaps should have also included. Through the years, though, we've learned a lot, entering the cocoon of speculative fiction as buffoonish amateurs and emerging as bright butterflies of buffoonery. The Drabblecast is still going in the same direction we started out in, folks, but now stronger, with bigger, faster, even more convoluted genitals than before. Genitals which, sadly, have become just too big for Luke and Kendall to take, despite their deep affinity and prodigious experience with the subject matter. Luke and Kendall are taking a new place as honorary co-editors and founders, and making room for a new hotshot, a new number two, a new associate editor. The Drabblecast welcomes Matthew Bay. Matt's a writer and editor living in Austin, Texas. He edits the print zine Space Squid, which I totally love, and also the fiction page of Revolution SF. And if you've heard the stories of his that we've run on the Travelcast before, Eggs, in episode 58, and The Elves Hate You, Drabblecast B-Sides, episode 8, I'm sure you'll agree that he's properly tapped into the spirit of weird which possesses this little vomit-spewing, crab-crawling-backwards-down-the-stairs podcast of ours here. Why, Matt's already jumped into action, eagerly sending out his first wave of rejection letters. Money for nothing and the chicks for free, eh, Matt? Drabblecast is in good tentacles, people. Matt's a complete psychopath. The best. And Luke and Kendall will still be around, like a pair of occasionally throbbing planter's warts that, yeah, sure, you could get rid of if you had an x knife and enough tequila, but you don't have an x knife, and there's no such thing as enough tequila. Thank you, Luke, and thank you, Kendall. Drabblecast would not be where it is today without you guys. And that's a statement, not a fact. Drabble time. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called From My Heart to Whatever the Hell You Have by Nicholas J. Carter. Nick is a Drabblecast fan and amateur writer who lives in Massachusetts with his lovely wife. He's been writing for about a year now, and his work can be found in places like Everyday Weirdness, Arct Magazine, and the blog Dog Eat Crow. He was thrilled to have taken second place recently in the Escape Pod Flash Fiction Contest and would love to someday have a full-length story on the Drabblecast. And have a pony. A delicious, nutritious pony. It's not you, it's me. I explained to Zorba Laxa. She just shook her head? Pod uh, whatever it was. She shook it silently and began to emit a cloying, sweet, green smoke. It was the Zrix's way of crying, I think. I planted a kiss on her mandibles. I think she could tell from the look in my eyes that it was final. Without much ado, she oozed up the silver ramp into the purple Zrix research vessel and out of my life forever. I remarried. But to this day, I still get a little aroused when I'm drunk and around sea cucumbers. Our feature story this week is called Something Borrowed, Something Doomed by Robert Jashonik. Robert's an award-winning writer whose fiction, comics, essays, and podcasts have been published around the world. Robert's written for Escape Pod, PodCastle, Travelcast, Space & Time, DC Comics, DAW Books Anthology, and many other places. Watch for his young adult urban fantasy novel, My Favorite Band Does Not Exist, coming out from Clarion Books and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Visit his website at thefictioneer.com for more of his twisted fantasy and science fiction tales. This story originally appeared in PS Showcase 3, Mad Scientist meets Cannibal. The bulk of the story is read to you by the lovely and exceptionally talented voice actress Lauren Singer, who you've heard before on the Cast in stories such as Mongoose and Go Into the Chapel. Also lending their voices this week, the wildly entertaining Doonstief duo Rish, Outfield, and Big Anklevich, and also the amazing voice of Delianne Forget, who read last week's story, The Red Bride, by Samantha Henderson. So, without further ado, we bring you Something Borrowed, Something Doomed, by Robert Jashanik.
1: Back home, we had a tradition. The worse the wedding, the better the marriage. That's why our people worked so hard to ruin each other's wedding days. It gave the bride and groom something to overcome, and a cause for hope, like there's nowhere to go from here but up. We told and retold the stories over and over, and they just got better with age. But just like with anything, sooner or later someone's gonna go too far. Face it, there are some calamities that just don't sound better no matter how many times you retell them. Like the end of the world, for example. That was the monkey business my brothers got up to on my wedding day. I guess I knew I was in for trouble when my brothers actually seemed to like my boyfriend Bigfoot. Nickname. It's just a nickname. Now, my brothers had a long history of hating my bows and driving them off, but Bigfoot won them over. Even 30-aught, the youngest and roughest, came around, which is really saying something. Part of it had to do with Bigfoot's winning personality. The rest of it, from what I could see, had to do with him being one of the best wild shiners around. Give him a glass of unprogrammed bacteria, and in nothing flat, he could turn 40 acres of -of run-of-the-mill woods into a fairy tale kingdom of twirling parasols and dancing geisha foxes. He was better than any of us, which I have to admit made me hate him in a jealous kind of way, at the same time I was falling in love with him. Now, when I say he was better than us, that's high praise. When it comes to wild shiners, my family, the dozens, were second only to Bigfoot tourniquet in the state of Best Virginia ipso facto in the whole United States, since Best Virginia was the only state where wild shinin' wasn't outlawed. The B in best is for bioengineering, you know. You wouldn't believe what we were doing out there. Of course, you've heard about the huntin'. Maybe you've even been lucky enough to go on a safari through one of our exclusive altered game preserves. But that was just the ass end of it, my friend. That was just the part we sold to make a living. What you didn't see is that we'd made an art out of wild shinin', just like our ancestors did with Moonshinin'. While the rest of the country had turned away from the biorevolution, we best Virginians had become magicians. We had learned how to use the tiniest creatures to change the world in the biggest, most beautiful ways. There was just one problem. As long as a human being is still doing the driving, the truck won't always make it up the hill. Just like any creative taps, sometimes we hit a roadblock. That's why. Even after the end of the world, I still haven't finished bringing my dead mama's favorite memory back to life. It really wasn't the rhino porcupine's fault I ended up covered with his poop. He was somebody else's creation, a stray who'd wandered into my family's gene fields. When I injected him with the hypodermic end of my six-foot cattle prod, shooting new genetic instructions into his system... He right away moved to obey. Problem was that big spiny critter swung around so fast I had to stumble out of his way and hit the ground. He didn't seem to notice that the load of crap he dumped as he lumbered by landed square on top of me. It was then, as I sat there, covered in steaming, reeking orange goo, that I heard what sounded like someone choking to death. Spotting him a few yards away, I realized that choking sound was just his way of laughing.
0: <laughs> oh, man. <laughs>
1: Bent over with his big catcher's mitt hands on his softball sized kneecaps, he was laughing so hard he could barely get his words out.
0: <laughs> I am so sorry.
1: No need to apologize, I said, smiling and trying not to show how angry I was.
0: <laughs> Actually,
1: said the guy, still laughing.
0: I do need to apologize. See, the rhino porcupine's one of my livestock.
1: And who does that make you? Slowly, I sunk my hands into the rancid muck around me. Still laughing, the guy straightened and pushed his glowing golden hair out of his eyes. He was a suncatcher. One of the more successful human offshoots whipped up in the home genome makeover craze from back before the bioengineering bust. Soaked-up sunshine lit every hair follicle on his licorice body like fiber optics in a coal seam. I thought he was just beautiful.
0: Family name's Tourniquet, he said. We're Wild Shiners from down Huntington Way.
1: Nice to meet you, Mr. Tourniquet. I said shortly before I pitched big, sopping handfuls of rhino porcupine poop at him. Lucky for you, I happened to be the welcome wagon. Now, aren't you going to ask me about our special way of welcoming folks in these parts? And that was how I met my future husband, Bigfoot Tourniquet. Six months later, I stood over my mother's burial plot, trying to finish the one last thing I had to do for her. Mama's name was Circa Dozen, and she was one of the original Jean Billies who fought off the National Guard and founded Best Virginia. She was also one of the greatest wedding wreckers of all time. Mama had died a week before of the crumbles. The one blessing was that she got to know my future husband before she went, as Bigfoot and I were pretty much joined at the hip by then. He couldn't help me with what I had to do for Mama, though. It was a Wild Shiner tradition, like ruining weddings. The firstborn had to shine up a permanent living memorial depicting the deceased's favorite moment on Earth. Problem was, I couldn't get the damn thing right. Mama had left specific instructions, but the moment kept coming out wrong. Mama's instructions were mostly in the form of genetic code, so I didn't know exactly how every little detail would come out in the end. I knew enough of the big picture that I could tell I wasn't even in the right neighborhood, though. I tried again in the fading summer twilight over Mama's plot, tossing fistfuls of pixie dust from two pouches, then adding pinches from three others. The shimmering powders danced in midair, mixing and whirling faster and faster, becoming a rainbow vortex that groaned and expanded. The dust sparkled and swirled as the microbes worked their magic, spinning earth and air and water and life into a whole different arrangement of matter and energy. Within the walls of the funnel, shapes appeared and moved and grew, half visible. Then the vortex peeled away in ribbons all the colors of the rainbow, revealing its handiwork. Right there in front of me was a scene from Mama's Wedding Day, big as life, In a gown, a pure white light ringed by tiny, fluttering cherubs, Mama kissed her new husband fully on the lips. The two of them floated in midair, slowly rotating six feet off the ground. All around them, the guests and preacher and wedding party drifted through the air too. Even as the congregation floated upward, the walls of the church came tumbling down, collapsing in clouds of dust and heaps of debris. All through it, Mama never stopped kissing her groom. Tears of joy streamed down her cheeks, and she held his face lightly in her long-fingered hands. I'd failed again. It wasn't the moment Mama had chosen, the one she'd written about in her will. Maybe I should have just let my genius nutjob brothers take care of it. A year later, I still wasn't having any luck with Mama's memorial, while my brothers managed to end the whole world on my wedding day. Delaney, the only one older than me, had promised me something special in the way of wedding ruination. But talk about your record for genius and stupidity all in one. I mean, what kind of brain trust ends the world while they're still living on it? During the ceremony, though, you'd hardly have known they were up to anything. Four of them were lined up as Bigfoot's groomsmen, and Gila, the second oldest at 26, was the best man. All five wore white tuxedos that set off their thick, black hair, and boy were they wearing the poker faces. Those long, black lashes of theirs flicked over bright blue eyes that looked pure and innocent as the new-driven snow on the best Virginian mountaintops. Things only got worse as the ceremony went on. And by worse, I mean everything went perfectly. Unlike other brides and grooms, Bigfoot and I traded rings without having them snatched and eaten by stampeding human hearts brandishing handguns. We said our vows without being drowned out by 12-foot-tall opera-singing Viking women with horrible body odor. By the time the minister said, I now present Mr. and Mrs. Hermes tourniquet, I was starting to think maybe no sabotage was coming after all. Then, as Bigfoot and I started down the aisle, the back of the church started to run. Not like legs or a nose, but like a painting in the rain. Holding Bigfoot by the arm, I stopped in the middle of the aisle and stared. The white of the walls, the dark brown of the doors and woodwork, the red and gold and blue of the stained glass windows ran downward in streaks, where the colors melted away a backdrop of perfect blackness loomed, uninterrupted by even the faintest flickering star. Just then, as everyone in the church turned around to see what the heck I was gaping at, I heard one of my brothers curse at the front of the church. It was Buck, the third oldest after Delaney and Gila. All right, said Buck. Which one of you guys forgot to set up the safety bubble around the church? I thought you were gonna do it, said Rattler the overexcitable next to the youngest of the five brothers, Buck let out a disgusted sigh.
0: I can't believe you guys dropped the ball again.
1: It was your job, Buck, said my youngest brother, 30 out.
0: Wally, you've shut up,
1: said Delaney.
0: Hey, uh, Vicky, uh, could you come here a minute?
1: I tore myself away from watching the church melt and headed for the boys. People in the rear pews were crowding toward the front of the place, hoping to escape the growing void.
0: We, uh, released this new world-eating bacteria, Vic.
1: Delaney said sheepishly, like he was confessing to reading my diary.
0: Yeah, the bad news is, someone forgot to protect the church. But you'll be okay. Uh, You're about to be the last person in the world.
1: Said there won't be a world, said Buck.
0: Uh, The good news is we're pretty sure you can shine up a new one,
1: said Delaney. And don't feel compelled to bring back these other
0: screw-ups when you do.
1: As I sweep my hand through the darkness, trails a twinkling glitter cascade from my fingertips. The world has ended, and I'm not alone. I float in an ocean of microbes the well-fed remnants of all I once knew. My brothers did a great job programming them for my survival. The microbes kept me safe during the apocalypse, and now they're providing all the air and water and nutrients I need to live, and more. I found out they respond to my thoughts. If I picture something and concentrate, it pops right up in front of me. Conjured from the digested matter and energy of the destroyed Earth. I've never heard of a wild shiner using mind control on microbes before. The only controlling we ever did was with DNA manipulation in the lab and creative mixing in the field. But I'm wondering if maybe I have seen this before. I keep thinking back to the way Mama's memorial kept going wrong. Even though I'd program the microbes real carefully and triple-check my work, the scenes they'd recreate were always different from the one I'd programmed into them. For a while, I'd wondered if I was subconsciously sabotaging my own work with my own two hands. But Bigfoot and Delaney had both checked the work and said it was A-OK. Now I see another way I could have sabotaged myself. I close my eyes and focus my thoughts on a memory, bringing it to the front of my mind. It's a moment I remember well, too well, and it comes easy to me. When I open my eyes, the moment surrounds me, life-size and perfect in every way. Mama and I, at age 16, sit together on a plank dock jutting from a bank of the Cacapon River. It's midsummer in the best Virginia hills, hot as the engine block of a pickup just got done climbing the switched back road up a mountain face. While my younger self sits there with Mama, I personally watch from a few yards away. I'm hovering over the crackling brown water in the middle of the river, and they can't see me. Even before Mama starts talking, I understand. There's a reason I thought of this now. It's the same reason I kept ruining her memorial. i only change the outside of you, Vic, says Mama, dangling her feet in the river water. The inside's just the same, and the inside's what I truly love. Sixteen-year-old Vicky tries to skim a stone over the river's sparkling surface, but it only hops once and sinks like her heart. I knew it, she says, her voice bitter cold. I always knew there was something wrong with me. Oh, no, no, honey. There's never been anything wrong with you. Mama reaches over to try to stroke Vicky's long black hair, but Vicky ducks away from her touch. Vicky looks up suddenly, like she just thought of something awful. My brothers? Did you change them, too? Mama sighs and nods. I shined up all of you. Tears gush from Vicky's eyes. Why? She says. Why did you do it? My own heart pounds as Mama takes Vicky's hand. To make us look more like a family, a family i always wanted. Vicky tries to tear her hand away, but she can't. I don't even know what I really look like. You think I don't love you? Mama kisses Vicky's hand. Tell the truth now. Vicky glares at Mama through her tears. She sobs and shakes, as birds sing, and fish flip out of the water and splash back down. What did I look like? Where did I come from? Don't matter. Tell me! Why won't you tell me who I really am? Mama looks down at the river gliding past. Because I love you too much, she says softly, and I'm too scared I'll lose you. I hate you, says Vicky. She jumps to her feet. I hate you and I'll never forgive you. Then, as she storms away, leaving her mother alone on the riverbank, I close my eyes. When I open them, the scene is gone. Nothing but blackness again. At last, I understand. As I reach out with my mind to the ocean of microbes around me, I know why I couldn't bring myself to shine up the memorial Mama wanted, and I know why she wanted it. It wasn't just for her. It wasn't just a memorial to her favorite moment of her life. It was a gift to me. Mama's instructions for the memorial were in the form of genetic code. I won't see all the details till the memorial's done, including the one thing I've always wanted to see more than anything else in my life. The one thing I've always been most scared of seeing. The one thing mama gave me as a final show of her love. The one thing she could finally afford to give me without fear, without worrying she'd lose me. Because I was losing her first. Now that the world's over and I have a clean slate to work with, I believe I can bring her gift to life and maybe I can finally forgive her. All around me, the darkness glows with the light of a gazillion microbes churning my thoughts into reality. Shapes appear in the murk, blurry like I'm seeing them through a curtain. And then they get brighter and more solid, like the curtain's lifting. Mama Circa gazes down at the small form glowing in the moonlit cradle. Smiling, she runs her hand along the side rail, watching the child curled up in the bedclothes. Trailer smells of beer and roses. Beer because the man and woman who live there are drinkers. Roses because of the soothing garden Mama circa had wild shined around them to deepen their sleep. Her heart pounds. Gently, she reaches for the child, drawing her up out of the cradle and into her arms. Closing her eyes, Mama hugs the child to her, but not so tightly that she will wake her. Mama beams. And breathes deeply, turning slowly with her prize in the silver moonlight at the scene of the crime. The one-year-old she is stealing sleeps soundly on Mama's shoulder. The little girl has thick black hair and long black lashes. Just then, somewhere in the night, a dog barks. The child in Mama's arms stirs and grunts, and her eyes flicker open. The child dances and catches her breath, as if she is about to cry. Gently, Mama swings her around and makes a funny face at her. The child relaxes and smiles. She stares for a moment, her eyes are bright green, and then she drifts back to sleep. Mama kisses the little girl's forehead and eases her onto her shoulder. The child sleeps soundly as her new mother whisks her out into the full moon, summer night.
0: Well, that was our story. Hope ye enjoyed. Robert submitted this story to us along with a contract pre-signed, saying it's got poop and rhino porcupines in it. Here, I saved you guys the trouble of sending me an acceptance letter just plan. we liked it if you enjoyed listening to this week's story how about donating to us so that we can keep sending you things that you enjoy listening to go to our website drapplecast.org and consider any of our support options we really appreciate it and we'd like to say as much in a little segment called the kick-ass donor of the week this week's is paul joiner Paul's a web monkey for a company that helps nonprofits raise money online. His own favorite is a little theater company where he lives in Austin, Texas, called La Fenice. www.lafeniceaustin.org. Paul somehow sold his house in this market and figured that since he's not in debt anymore, it's time to give back. And since we make his miserably long drive a little more tolerable, he picked us. Thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Alrighty, folks, on to this week's 100 character story winner. Twobble Maestro Muncie takes it again this week with this one here. How many zombies does it take to change a light bulb? Don't know, don't care, and there's no way you're opening that door. Hehehe, <laughs> zombies. All right, folks, that's this week's show. As always, it was produced with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means don't change any of it, don't sell any of it, but feel free to share it all you like. Write good things about us here and there, tell a friend about us, help spread the word. Special thanks to this week's episode artist, who, with all this staff situating going on, we decide to go ahead and start calling our official art director, since he's pretty much that behind the scenes anyway, Bo Kyer. Check him out at Bokyre.com. Oh, and the official Megabeast trading cards came in, and people, they are awesome. Beau designed them, see samples, and order them at megabeasts.com. Only 20 bucks, you get 36 of the most amazingly badass, scientifically altered super animal abominations that you've ever laid your eyes on. Get them while they're hot. And while you're at the site, why not go ahead and vote for Tristegatops. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, our staff is made up of a 12-foot-tall opera-singing Viking woman with horrible body odor, associate editor Matthew Bay, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that the B is for bioengineering.